0: Five. You want to look that up, and I find that in page five thirty-one. page five thirty-one, verse seventeen. And I want to remind you, right, look at I would like to remind you, that this is your confession of faith, as it is mine. And so the question that comes to us is, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? How does Christ's resurrection led to us. First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death, so that he could make us share in the righteousness which he had obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are raised up to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is to us sure pledge of our glorious resurrection as far of the reading of God's holy word and the summary of that word we find in the preaching of the church. Once again, we have God having the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word this afternoon. We love the congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ has little bit here together this afternoon in, in, in the in this, in this building If you Something of the historical and cultural condition of the Church of Corinth, you will know that it was a very secular city. It was a Greek city. And the Greeks, of course, were rather impressed with their abilities to discuss, analyze, accept, reason, and philosophize. Corinth had many men who were wise intellectually, and they loved the sit of the academics and the porches of the markets, whereas where they were discuss with much human wisdom, The philosophy of the meaning of life. And during one of his missionary journeys, the Apostle Paul had been there, he had preached the gospel there, and the church had been established. And now, in the letter that we have before us this afternoon, Paul writes to that church in Corinth and we discover that Paul writes to them because great problems had arisen in the Corinthian congregation. The congregation was torn apart by factions by social, moral, and leadership problems. It was known that there were sexually immoral persons within the congregation, and Paul instructs them to expel such people from the Church, turn them over to Satan. In other words, Church discipline had been neglected. And Paul urges them to once again exercise the keys of the kingdom and ecclesiastical discipline. Next. Paul challenges the congregation concerning their taking cases for litigation before the civil magistrates, rather than settling the disputed of scripture among themselves. He urges them to demonstrate their Christ-likeness by willing to even be wronged and cheated, rather than go to the world for legal solutions to questions in the life of believers. Then, in chapter 8, Paul advises them with regards to the propriety of eating the meat offered to of idols, but also there, they disagreed among themselves, adding more fuel to the divisive spirit that prevailed in the church. But there's more. In the chapters 11 through 14, he addresses their division with regards to worship, the Lord's supper, and spiritual gifts, and he impresses on them the need for these things to be done decently and in good order. He appeals for an orderly worship service. And then finally, in chapter 15, we learn that there were even significant doctrinal differences among them. Paul had heard that there were some members of the Church who went as far as to say, or to even deny, that there would be a resurrection of the body. And in the light of all all of that division and tension, Paul warns the congregation that they were on a perilous journey as Church, They were being led astray by false teachings and the denial of the resurrection could only have catastrophic consequences for the church. And even apart from all of their other divisions, without holding fast to that doctrine concerning the resurrection, they couldn't even hope to survive, let alone thrive for the congregation. The situation was urgent. Paul knew, of course, just as easily, that when, we, when, when a spirit of division enters a congregation, it drives the people apart, and then that necessary unity in Christ will be replaced by factions. And that was precisely the situation in the Corinthian church. The members of the congregation were now given to following certain leaders. You know the story: some claimed to follow Paul, other Paul, some Cephas, and finally others claimed to follow Christ. And now Paul, wasting we appeals to them to strive for a singleness of heart, be of one mind. He asked us the rhetorical question, is Christ divided? Apparently, some members believed, and some of their teachers taught, that there was nothing after the grave. And it seemed they were gathering a following, and the congregation had become divided. The bond of peace and unity was broken, and then in our text we were Paul responding with history and with ultimate indignation but what of Christ? If the dead did not rise, then Christ has not risen. Has Simon not seen him after he was dead and buried? Was it not so that at one time 500 people had seen him after his dead body had been removed from the cross and laid in the tomb? And is it, not, is it not true that many who saw him there are still alive today and, and, and can and do testify to the appearance of the resurrected Lord? Furthermore, says Paul, if you do not believe in the Resurrection, then my preaching the Gospel to you has been vain. Then you are still in your sin. You are without hope, and you are without God in the world. The now, hand congregation is a thumbnail sketch of the situation in the Corinthian congregation. It would be safe for us to say that it was not a healthy situation and out of love and concern for the truth and for the well-being of that congregation, Paul rebukes them, and he instructs them concerning the resurrection of our Lord. And those truths have been gathered from Scripture and have been presented to us in verse day 17. If you want to listen to the word of God, I'm use it my theme. The threefold benefits derived from the resurrection of The threefold benefit of the Resurrection derived from the Resurrection of Christ. And we want to learn that the Resurrection in connection with our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. So the threefold benefit that we derive from the Resurrection of our Lord, we want to learn the benefit of our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. Those terms are not familiar to you, I will explain them as you. If you are familiar with the catechism, you will know that
1: until now,
0: until verse 17, the catechism has been dealing with the humiliation of Christ. The previous verse deals with Christ descending into hell, verse 16. And in the last question and answer of verse 16, we confess that the anguish of hell enveloped Christ, and God us was his law. That was the power of death that entered the world through sin the believers of sin, death. For all that changed on Easter morning, when the angels met the women at the grave, and he preached them with the words, he is not here. He who was crucified is no longer here. He who was dead, he lives. The Lord has risen indeed. Indeed, Jesus rose from the grave. But the consequence of that resurrection is the justification of all believers." Those who believe on him are, as you will, the church, believers. The church is now covered with and clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you know what righteousness means. To be righteous means to be sinless. And so, through the death and the resurrection of our Lord, God's people were declared by God to be sinless or righteous. They were justified. Understand this with me now. Justification is that God, as a righteous judge, for Jesus' sake, declares believers to be free from the burden of their guilt before him, and that he makes them heirs of heaven. In other words, God now looks down from his throne in heaven, and he sees us through the blood of Jesus Christ, and he sees us not as we were in heaven, but as we have become in Jesus Christ. God sees us standing before him, washed in the blood of Jesus, and he declares us to be sinless before him. That's justification. And that justification, whereby all believers are now covered by the righteousness of Christ, is a benefit of Christ's resurrection, and we see him immediately beginning to dispense that benefit upon his resurrection. Talk to the same with me, already in that first Easter morning there at the tomb, we saw the unbelieving Mary Magdalene. We see Peter, the fallen disciple. We see the strangers on the road to Emmaus, all fleeing from all that had happened on Golgotha on a Friday. But the resurrected Lord comes to them, and he begins to grant them righteousness. Mary is brought to her knees, while in unbelief she saw the dead friend she now finds a living Lord and Savior. Our Lord takes Simon Peter aside and shows him compassion and forgiveness. And then Christ hurries down the road after the confused and discouraged strangers on the road to Emmaus, and he comforts them with his words until they cry out that their hearts burned within them as he walked with them and them the scriptures while they walked together on the road we are called to see in all this now, is that each one sought out by the resurrected Lord, was granted forgiveness of sin, assurance of pardon, and a guarantee of eternal life. They were made righteous before God. God accepted <clears throat> the redemptive work of Christ on behalf of a sinner, and declared sinners to be right with him now and forever, all because of Christ's death and resurrection. His death was in payment for their sin. His resurrection was evidence that God had accepted his sacrifice, and therefore his cry on the it is finished. Paul, uh, that was Paul's whole point in our text for this afternoon. What does Christ's resurrection benefit you? What good does it do you that God raised Jesus from the dead? And by his resurrection, he has overcome that. That he might make us, you and me, partakers of the righteousness which he has obtained for us by his death. In other words, says Paul. In other words, says the Catholic, no. In other words, says the scripture. In other words, says God. Had Christ not been raised from the dead, then there would be no righteousness of Christ upon men. There would be no forgiveness of sin, there would be no gospel to preach for all men would still without hope in the Lord God in the world. That's why Paul said his preaching would be in vain if Christ had not risen. But now Christ is risen from the dead. He has been seen by many eyewitnesses. And therefore, we now have hope, and we have God. For we have forgiveness of sin earned in his death and granted us in his resurrection. Dear precious people of God gathered here with me in the Lord, all of this cannot leave you cold or indifferent. You see, the question asks, What benefit do you receive from His resurrection? And then you, I reminded you, it was your confession, and then you, and then you confess that that righteousness, that sinlessness, not blessed, is now your own possession, and that forgiveness. Is now a benefit for you, a benefit that you have received from the resurrected Lord. Understand this with me now. It's the, it's the old old gospel that you're hearing. You see, our sin brought Jesus to the cross. Our sin brought Christ into the grave. Have we, have we really understood that? Have we well tell me then? Does your sin bother you? Does your sin bring you to tears of sorrow and repentance? It's crucial that you understand that, for you see, if we're not convicted of that need, then the gospel holds no comfort for you. The gospel of good news is good news only for those who have learned to cry out with the psalmist, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And all those who cry out, Oh God, me, a culpa. Oh God, I am guilty. And who is that, and all those who in that humble posture, in contrite heart and broken spirit, go to Christ, they will then find the forgiveness, and Christ's righteousness will be their own. My dear the charge is often made, perhaps you heard. Perhaps you've made it. The charge is often made that the preacher is heavy on sin, but he's light on the grace. And and, 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 and yet can yet preacher's cannot separate those two elements of the gospel. You see, God's grace can be found only in the context of sin. You cannot separate those two elements of the same glorious gospel. To present the gospel of good news apart from sin is to present a false gospel. And it is to leave the sinner of a false hope and a false sense of security. We may and we must speak of God's great forgiving grace but we may present that grace only as God's grace in forgiving our acknowledged and confess sin. Did he not hear the apostle speaking the words of God after him? And he said, if you confess your sin, then God is faithful and just, will forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all of iniquity. In fact, the Bible was on to say, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow, but it is confessed sin that we're talking about as the Catechism continues, we read that Christ was raised not only for our justification, declaring us free from the guilt of our sin, but also his resurrection benefits extend toward our sanctification. We read, by his power, we are raised to a newness of life. And what we're getting to see here is that not only can we expect a resurrected physical body, We also, through Christ's resurrection, receive a new spiritual being. Walk with me for a few minutes as we work this out together. You see, according to your Bible, man, in his natural state, is dead in sin and trespass as a result of the fall in paradise. Man has become separated and alienated from God. You remember the story. Adam and Eve, our first parents and representatives of the entire human race, they were initially created righteous before God. But being seduced by the devil, they chose to obey Satan rather than God. And as a result, they and their posterity lost that righteousness They became children of Adam rather than children of God. And ever since that fateful day in paradise, all of Adam's posterity, including you and me and our children, all of Adam's posterity, we are conceived and born in sin, worthy of all manner of misery, gave to condemnation itself. As the old McGuffey reader said so eloquently, in Adam's fall we sin all. Every human heart now by nature, by nature what comes naturally to us, hates God and neighbor and is inclined to all all evil, you confess that in your catechism as well. The power of sin and death holds dominion over the hearts of all men since all men have fallen in Adam. But the glorious good news of the gospel is that Christ has come into the world to reconcile man to God. And what our confession wants us to know this afternoon is that the death and the resurrection of our Lord not only provides atonement totally for sins we've just heard, but we're also given a new spiritual life already now. It is as He Himself has promised: because I live in Christ, because I live, uh, you also live. I leave mean, you not as orphans; I give you, I give you, I give you, I give you the Holy Spirit. In that life now, we understand as the miracle of regeneration or if you will, new birth. God then by his holy Spirit removes the heart of stone he received in Adam and he replaces it with a heart of living flesh, a heart beating and pulsing with desire to serve a risen Lord. And that desire and the process of holy obedient living is called a life of sanctification or holiness. That's what we call being fruit-bearing or born of the Spirit. In that there is another of the precious benefits earned by Christ and granted the Christian as a result of his resurrection. Those bought with his precious blood have all their sins forgiven and they are raised from spiritual death to newness of spiritual life. They are no longer content to remain in their sin they can no longer live in their sin. They recognize their sin. They over their sin. They mourn in anguish over it. And they begin to hate their sin more and more. They begin to flee from it more and more. If I can use an illustration here, I'll make it perhaps a poor one. It's like the, the spring sun. All winter long, the earth appears to be cold and dead. But when the spring sun begins to warm the earth, then new life arises everywhere. And, and then we see the ground is not dead after all, but it springs to new life in the light of the rays of the spring sun. And in the same way, the life and the living of the Christian basks in the resurrected Lord. He shines his sun upon them, and their former dormant, sterile, and impotent eyes spring to new life, the life obedient, Christian, thankful living. Peter Bleding is virgin then, also for us, to honestly search our own hearts, to search our own lives for evidence of that new life that flows from belonging to the resurrected Christ. But when we do that, when we have to confess that there is still so much sin, so much shame, so much failure, Our lives, our families, our marriages, our churches, are not what God calls them to be. God calls them to be holy, but we are not. Our lives so infrequently reflect the holiness of Christ. Why is that now? Careful now. It can be because we have not been given sufficient measure of God's grace in Christ, no. We ourselves frequently refuse to be the Spirit of Christ, sufficient room in our hearts and lives. It is our only fallen, sinful spirit that still influences so much of our life and living. We so often lose sight of the fact that Christ gave us his all. And so often we forget that he victoriously leads us on our way to glory. And so often we forget to give him out oh, oh. of let the again, pray to God. We're taught here that despite our sin, we ought not to lose hope, but as our communion form captures it so beautifully when it says that although we often yet fall into various sin, we may not despair, but also we may not remain in it. My dear God, when you become discouraged because of the sin in your life, do not despair, no rather look to Christ for strength. Put no confidence in yourself. The sinful arm of flesh will fail you always. And in of you yourself you can do nothing. Only in him can we move and have our being. Remember that he who has begun his good work in you, that new birth, he will bring it to completion. all. Oh, walk them, work them, live them, live them out of your faith in his promises. Live a life of thankful obedience in accordance with His law, and then do so with gratitude for all for all that He has done and been and meant. Consciously resist the sinful inclinations of your own fallen heart. Learn to cry out with the psalmist, help me thy will to do, thy truth I will pursue. Teach me to fear, give me the singleness of I, thy name to glorify. O oh, Lord, my God most parted, with heart sincere. And then finally have the taught us that our benefit of the resurrection of Christ consists of justification and sanctification the catechism also wants to teach it in a further benefit, is glorification. We read, the resurrection of Christ is to us a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. A pledge, in the context in which it is used here, means guarantee. In a certain restricted sense, it's like, a, it's like a, a down payment. We need to be somewhat careful here because the analogy breaks down. If I was to buy something from you and I did not yet take possession of it for whatever reason, in order to demonstrate my serious intention to buy the proper time, I would give you a a deposit. And in the same way, now Christ's resurrection is a down payment, a, a, a pledge to verify the reality that glorification, eternal life, is now a guarantee I you to pay close attention for the confession clearly states that his resurrection is a pledge of our blessed resurrection. And that word blessed in this context contains two connotations, both of which we need to be understood by us. First of all, we are taught here that there will be two resurrections. Here we go. One for the blessed and one for the cursed. In other words, all will rise on that last day godly and the ungodly. There will be true resurrection, the godly and the ungodly, the pious and the profane alike. The hour is coming when all will hear the voice of our Lord and all will rise, some to eternal life, some to eternal condemnation. There is then a living and a dying in Christ. And there is a living and a dying outside of those who have lived apart from Christ will also rise from the dead, but will then be eternally lost. Scripture is clear on that matter. But here in our confession, we speak of the blessed resurrection of the blessed people, meaning then those who have been blessed with the blessed benefits of Christ's resurrection. In other words, the confession insists that we and we believe that those who die in the Lord will have their earthly bodies transformed into that of the glorified body of Christ. That is the glorious fruit of benefit earned for us by Christ on that glorious Easter morning. And it is now in that light that the Lord calls us to view the graves of all of our loved ones who have gone on before us and who have died in the Lord. It is that glorious message that I have that's an to that to you this afternoon. And it is that same glorious message we hear each time we stand around the grave of our loved one. People thought the Bible so clear and emphatic about Christ's resurrection. It is, in fact, the linchpin of the entire Christian faith. Without the resurrection of Christ, we have no hope, and we're still without God in the world. But Christ has risen. He has risen from the dead and Scripture is so emphatically telling us that one of the great benefits of Christ's resurrection is the assurance of our own resurrection. You see, at death, the body is sown in the ground and will lie not for autumn in the grave, no. When Christ returns, he will call every body of the earth to resting place, and he will transform that body of believers, the body of believers, into a glorious one. And in the context of all of this, allow me a brief interjection. in this context, I want to interject something. Paul teaches us in this chapter, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, that the body is sown. And that already is a clue concerning how we are to treat the bodies of our departed loved ones. To sow something means to plant in the ground, unfortunately today, cremation has become a thing to do. We're being deceived into believing that cremation is more ecologically friendly. And therefore, it would be more pleasing to the Lord if we cremate rather than bury the dead. We're told that it's less costly, It's so also more stupidly. tragically, even within the Christian Church, we are more and more seeing Christians opting for cremation. My dear people of God, in the context of what the Bible teaches on the value of the human body, the body of the believer in the context of a bodily resurrection, I would argue that that to cremate a body of the Redeemer, although not the unpardonable sin, is not a good biblical option for Christians. The body is sown in the ground to awake that last great day of the Lord, even our Lord is buried in anticipation of his own resurrection. While well, I know there are certain circumstances where bodies are accidentally destroyed in certain circumstances and God will remedy. But when given the choice, Christians should follow the meaning of their Lord and choose to be buried, not cremated. Tell your children of your choice while you still can, and explain to them it is because of your hope and your confidence, your own bodily resurrection, that you want your body buried, not bear. My dear, precious people, God, we see cemeteries all over the world, countless cemeteries, millions and millions of graves. It's not even counting the mass graves of wars, of catastrophes, and the unknown graves of millions. We see millions and perhaps millions of graves, graves of mighty men, graves of rulers, kings, princes of the earth. We see graves of everyday common folk. We see the graves of our grandparents, our parents, why, perhaps a husband, earth, like perhaps even a precious, precious child. How does we see these graves? Listen to the precious, precious words of Scripture. Now I say, brethren, that the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery: we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at that last. Comfort. From the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the same. Death is swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God who gives us that victory in Jesus Christ. Whatever. Glorious gospel God gives to us and lets be preach to you. We do not deny that around the grave there is yet so much pain and sorrow. Earthly precious relationships are broken at the grave, never to return. Parents, husbands, wives, even children are torn from our hearts and out of our lives and the pain and the tears are real. We stand around the grave and we watch the casket being lowered into the dark, cold belly of the ground, and our hearts break. And our Lord does not forbid you that sorrow; yet He does forbid that we weep as those who have no hope. For we know that death will be swallowed in victory, and we know that our mortal, corrupt bodies will be raised immortal and incorruptible. How will it all be? The scripture is silent in that manner, and in that information remains with the hidden things of God. But this much is certain and necessary for you to know. According to the Bible, our physical bodies will, our physical bodies will have a glorious future, and all of this is thanks to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. He arose from the grave as head of the church, and as consequence, all members of his eye of the church will arise with him. Oh, not all those whose names are on the membership rolls though, some of them will still be lost in spite of the great grace that was set before them. But all true living members of his body will arise. will be joined to the head in glory. He is the firstborn of those who have died. In the Lord, give God. will you remember that when death's cold you approaches your own problem, when you are called to walk in the valley of the shadow of death, will you then hold fast to this promise of God? To doubt that, as a child, Lord, constitutes sin on your part. For the pledge, the guarantee of your resurrection was laid in and has risen from that true of Joseph of Arimathea on Easter morning. My dear, dear, precious, precious people of oh, God. What a glorious Easter song of praise that we heard by us this afternoon from our Bibles. We've heard the glorious song from the Apostle Paul, speaking the very words of Christ of God himself after him. The final enemy, death have been defeated because he arose from the grave, Pray it with me, and it may be the blessed assurance for each of us that we too shall triumphantly and victorious with the apostle all. Praise be to God, who has given us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Would you turn with me for our hymn and response? We'll be sitting again this time we'll with C's, number four, five, and six. Mm-hmm.